0: Modern.
1: modern 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 we're prepping for a voyage modern, modern. the force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration why don't you make that a double modern bar cart what's shaking cocktail fans welcome to episode 279 of the modern bar cart podcast i'm your host eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where I track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that I can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by Gian Nelson of Hano Spirits. He's one of a very small group of distillers working with American agave varietals to carve out this emerging niche in the U.S. spirits industry. But before we explore the agave-studded microclimates of California, Let's take a brief pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Batanga. To make it, you'll need two ounces of tequila. Generally a silver tequila is utilized in this context, but you can feel free to substitute with any agave spirit of your choosing. One half ounce lime juice, three ounces or so of cola and salt for rimming the glass. Begin by slicing a fresh lime, squeezing it for juice and rubbing the spent half around the rim of a highball glass. Next, you're gonna go ahead and roll that rim in the salt and fill it with ice. Since this is a built drink in the style of a Cuba Libre, all you need to do is add your agave spirit, lime juice and cola to top in that order. And important to the final ritual of this drink, stir it with the knife you used to cut the lime. Garnish simply with a lime wheel or a nice lime twist, and enjoy. The batongo was invented in the 1960s at a bar in tequila called La Capilla, or The Chapel, by owner and bartender Don Javier Delgado Corona. In this cocktail, we see the confluence of multiple drink trends. Most notable, we have the collision of the Cuba Libre format with the ever-popular Mexican salt rim, which is commonly used to adorn drinks like margaritas and micheladas. Another particularly romantic aspect of this cocktail is that Don Javier is alleged to have used his prep knife to stir each drink, imparting the flavor of the lime plus potentially other savory dishes like salsas and guacamoles that he was also preparing using that cutting board. The Batanga is having what we can only call a moment right now, and that kind of makes sense. You can only have so many espresso martinis before you start looking for something new. But let's take a moment to appreciate what the Batanga brings to the table it takes perhaps the least inspired call drink right the booze and coke changes the base spirit to something new revives the cuba libre format by insisting on the lime adds a twist with that salt rim and begs for a little bit of ritual with the signature serve knife stir that's a whole lot of surface area that a regular old rum and coke doesn't bring to the table a lot of little opportunities for creative bartenders to wiggle into the spec and make this drink their own. Some have done this by adding a little bit of amaro as a reference to the Fernet and Coke trend that's popular in many parts of Central and South America. Others look to similar aromatized ingredients like Ancho Reyes chili liqueur to simulate the jalapenos that might have graced the cutting board of Don Javier Delgado Corona more than 60 years ago. Of course, You can also get in there and fiddle with the salt rim or the cola or the citrus profile, but I'll leave that for you to decide. So now that you've got a new Cuba Libre riff to break out next Taco Tuesday, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this groundbreaking down and dirty conversation with Gian Nelson of Hano Spirits, some of the topics we discuss include How Jian found his home in the creative and multidisciplinary workspace of the wine and spirits industry, and why he's selected Agave Americana as the canvas on which he expresses his passion. An overview of the different types of agave spirits currently being produced here in the U.S., specifically the differences between using imported agave syrup versus actual farmed or wild agaves. Why Mexico is becoming the old world of agave spirits production and how American and other international producers are responding to a lack of shared knowledge across borders with characteristic punk rock innovation. What it would mean for a bartender or beverage program in Mexico to import American agave spirits specifically to feature on their sipping or cocktail menu and how many thousands of pounds, let me say that again, thousands of pounds of piñas it takes to make just 10 cases of agave spirits. Along the way, we meditate on the mystical nature of inulin conversion, celebrate the influence of Chicano flavors and cultures, learn how to get your neighbor to let you dig up their agave plants, and much, much more. I've had the chance to chat with Gian in person on a couple of occasions, and I have to say that this interview has gotten me even more excited than I was before about what he and other distillers are doing to raise the profile of American agave spirits. Toward the end of the episode, we will share how you can get your hands on a bottle of award-winning Hano spirits, but for now, please enjoy a fascinating glimpse into the emerging category of American agave with Gian Nelson. Gian, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man, how you doing? Great, man. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's kick it off with uh, the quick intro, and then we'll dive deeper. Who are you, and what do you do?
0: So I'm Gian Nelson. I'm one of the uh, partners of Hano Spirits, a California agave spirit. We started it in 2021 with the idea of using U.S. native agaves for agave spirit production, and... um, You know, seeing how far we we can um, take it. So here we are. How far
1: we can take it? I like that. How far we can take it? That might be something that we return to whenever I talk to a distiller. Obviously, there's that hanging question of how'd you get into it? Are you you know did you get burnt out of something that you originally did? Did you you know come from? you know, like an X, Y, or Z background. Uh, So I wanna ask you about your distilling journey, but I also, just as importantly, want to understand how you came to become a door to door agave landscaper. So you can take those in whichever order you want. Just uh, tell us the story. How'd you you get into this? And how did you end up with dirt on your hands knocking on doors?
0: Dude, I love it, man. Because like, there's so many cool points here. Because first, like, I've always said this about the distilling industry, like we are just a bunch of rejects from other industries, you know? And so like, anytime I go to these conventions, like you talk about like, every single time, it's like I came from a chemistry background, I came from um you know, a, a you know, science background or, you know, crazy guys from like, I was like selling clothes. And then I just like was doing a little shine on, on the side. And so I think it's been a really fun trajectory for For Hano, for myself, I mean, for me, I came out of the Marine Corps in 2012 um, with really no sense of direction. You know, there wasn't really a big, um, you know, guide map for me when I was getting out. And um, I actually fell into wine as random as that was being in Orange County. I met with a um, family. I dated their daughter and they had a vineyard I'm in a winery there. And I just um, something kind of clicked in there where uh, for the first time I had the ability to ask why something was being done and, and the having the creative outlet, you don't really get a lot of that sometimes when you're in a uniform. And so when I got into it, was it was a perfect harmony of hard work, um, science, creativity, art, um, and kind of expression. And so I was in wine for about four years before I got into distilling. And um, what I really loved about wine was, Being able to be multifaceted. We were in the fields, working in the vineyards. We were, you know, when it was time to make the wine, we were in the crush pad, you know, obviously harvesting and, you know, getting the grapes from from the vine all the way into a barrel. And then, you know, any other time of the year, you were bottling, you were taking care of barrels, blending, tasting, uh, working in the tasting room, putting labels on bottles. You were just doing everything, um, you know, and I really love that. And so distilling was kind of a, a great transition for me because in craft distilling, it was really still coming up in like 2016. Um, And so there really wasn't a lot of craft distillers out there, especially like in California. And I decided it was a really good place uh, to kind of grow. And so um, I hopped on, I worked with, uh, and helped build the lock and union distillery um, in American Canyon, Napa Valley. And kind of cut my teeth there, uh, making single malt whiskey, brandies, gins, um, you know, anything that really, you know, came in a sack or in a juice or a syrup. Um, And then, and then, yeah, finally to Hano was really the cultivation of everything that I loved about wine and spirits was how do you take a natural product, uh, like a plant, uh, like an agave and then harvesting it like we did in wine, doing the process of, you know, fermentation into distillation, and then, you know, finally your expression of, of what it is. And then having a Mexican-American background where agaves were always around you, whether you were in Mexico or I grew up in Southern California, you know, it was just a natural, I don't know, kind of route to take. Um, and so uh, we, we ended up... Yeah, trying to do it in the way that we thought was as authentic and transparent as possible. Like, how can we not make a tequila? How can we not make a mezcal? You know, we wanted to do something that was very unique um, to to California, the United States. And, uh, you know, uh, I can go all day about, you know, finding the Americana agave um, and, you know, doing our first couple batches by almost serendipity. But then the landscaping part came in because there aren't as many um, agave americanas being row cropped um you know in california you know the, a lot of guys that are planning um you know started with uh, the tequilania the blue weber um, and so the only way that like we've been able to kind of grow the agave americana category has been by literally knocking on people's doors cuz the agave americana has been you know, used as a landscaping, you know, plant for, for a long time. And so a lot of people have these agave Americanas in their front or backyards and they don't really know that they could be used for something other than, um, ornamental or what happens when the, the coyote grows the big stock and all of a sudden it goes to mush. So it's been kind of fun to be that guy that can knock on the door and go, Hey, by, by the way, when that thing ripens up, I can, I can take that out from you or your your little babies that that grow from the agave, and so so yeah, that's that's the long winded answer.
1: <laughs> I love that uh, you have the the Marine Corps background because I want to key in on on the point that you made about wine being multifaceted and and sort of the process of getting into the wine and spirits industry being more of a nose to tail process for you, where you get to kind of touch the different aspects of not just the product but the process and all that comes to my mind is forrest gump when he's taking apart the rifle gump you are a goddamn genius and it's like no that's not the point he's not thinking at all like it's he's just he's the automaton and and you're coming out of this um you know out of this culture where at least to a certain extent the 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 sort of unquestioning you know top-down, very um, streamlined decision-making without any question to the why or the wherefore is, is rewarded and good because it, it gets results. But now you're in this different industry where the why suddenly seems to leak into every aspect of the process as opposed to being sort of protected from the process. So, So that's interesting to me. Before we get further into this, I, I want to talk about your selected agave of choice, this uh, agave Americana, because uh, another Californian who has roots in the wine industry, uh, Berko Halloran, he came on our show a little while back, a couple years ago, and he's working with some California sage in this, you know, kind of like as, as a way of like, you know, developing a, a unique product with a sense of of terroir that is separate from the, the Vermouth um, Artemisia tradition. So I'm seeing some parallels here. Tell us about agave Americana.
0: Yeah. Oh my God, man. It, uh, that's the cool part about using a, a very terroir driven natural product or plant you know um like agave i mean agave americana like any other agave are big water pots they suck in all the water and minerals and and um you know its surroundings just like a grape does and it it does it for seven to 40 years and so you know what we're really trying to do with these agave americanas is not only express the fact that you know we have native agaves here in the, in the United States that are very unique to us, but that the terroir and, and, re, and the regionality that you can have with these agaves are very similar to, to grapes or, or maybe sage. Um, what fascinates me with the whole process is is having the abundance of micro. Climates here in the state of California. You know, we have the mountain ranges, the valleys, the coasts, the deserts, um, where uh, where agaves grow. Um, you know, in, in all of them, um, in specific ones uh, mostly. And so, how can we isolate those agaves, grow those agaves, and celebrate where they're from and the people that have taken care of them or the community around them because i think they tell a story they've been there for longer than we have you know carried on the backs of native americans and and other people and and we're really proud of the fact that you know we're 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 trying to to express those agaves and and their flavor profile from where they're from you know every time we go to a harvest
1: i think that we should talk a little bit as well about the types of agave spirits that are being made in America, because we've gathered at this point that you are trying to do something different from tequila, mezcal, sotol, et cetera, et cetera, in that you're not in Mexico. Cool. Mm-hmm. That's like a, that's like a, a, an arbitrary line drawn on a map. And we know that their laws and our laws are different. And there's many reasons why what you're doing is, is different from that. Just in a, like a in in principle way. Um, but in practice, what kinds of agave spirits are currently or have been being made in the United States? And kind of where do you situate your approach within that portfolio of things that are already being done, things that are already out there labeled as American agave spirits?
0: Yeah, man. I mean, so right now it's kind of the the wild west as far as like how uh American agave spirit is being produced. I think, you know, the main more popular one right now is, is getting, you know, agave syrup imported from, from Mexico, um, you know, fermenting that, that syrup, distilling it, and, and having an agave spirit made from there. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a pretty popular approach and the, more, the most accessible approach that we have right now. You know, um, You know, I was like talking to our friends at Mean Mule and it was like, you know, agaves in Kansas aren't really a thing right now. You know, they're not a prevalent thing, but you know, from all over the American Southwest from Texas to here, um, and now in Hawaii, you know, you're, you're seeing agaves, um, you know, not only just naturally growing, but now people are, are thinking about growing them as an actual crop. Um, and, you know, and then you have the other folks down in in Texas, the desert door folks growing, uh, Satole. And I think that's a a really beautiful story and, and actually, uh, we would like to think we have an aligned mentality on, on what they they were doing, you know, first they were naturally harvesting or, or native ha- harvesting, you know, agaves, um, on people's, ra- or not agaves, to on, the, on people's ranches, um, and, and using, and using them to make a spirit, you know, and, and here in California, there's a big movement of, agave growing. You know, we have the California Agave Council, which we're really proud of being a part of. And, you know, right now we're facing a pretty, a pretty interesting time in agriculture in California. There's, there's a, obviously a water uh, situation, a drought situation. And so a lot of farmers are using agave as an alternative source for planting, you know, whether it's on fallowed ground or, you know, ripping out our almond orchards and planting, you know, agaves. For, for water conservation and um, drought resistance. Um, and so those are like the main three that I can think of. And I think where we're really paving our own road is that you know we're being very specific on how we produce um, and grow our agave spirit. And so first is by using US native agaves, that's you know uh, agaves, like you mentioned, before or after the line was, drawn in the sand between Mexico and the United States, you know, there's always a big conversation of whether they're native or not, but we like to think of, you know, if they were grown in the United States and and they still are, then, you know, we're gonna call those native. And so for instance, there's the agave Americana, the most popular one you see. There's the agave peri, which has been, uh, you know, very um, uh, grown by the native Americans in Arizona for a long period of time. In California, we have the agave shaw-eye, the murphy-eye, Utah There's just a ton of different varieties that you have here in California. And so what we're really trying to do in the field to start with is, you know, growing these specifically to the environments that they are, that they would thrive more in, right? The agave peri agave americana, you know, they're very multifaceted agaves. They can grow in warm and cold climates, but... They're very, very cold and you know and, and hardy to the cold environments. So we can grow those basically anywhere uh, in snow, uh, in the desert, if you want. Um, you know, the agave shai is a very beautiful uh, agave that grows. Um, you in kind of like this Southern California, San Diego area, all the way to Baja uh, they found and um, very coastal driven kind of agave. So you have all these different agaves that we want to grow. And then also where we take the approach is by using regenerative agricultural techniques, trying to, you know, develop the, the, the land and the soils in a very um, organic way and, and using only good practices so we can have, you know, better, higher sugar, tastier agave, which then lends to our fermentation practices. We we try to do uh, native fermentation as best as possible, uh, so we can really um, you know show the terroir and the agave as best as we can. Um, and so that's what we mean by really moving the you know blazing our own trails is just to really trying to to do it in a way that you know is just yeah our own.
1: Yeah, we're gonna put a pin in fermentation. We might come back to that, but I imagine it's. A little bit bizarre to somebody like driving on a road, because I've been to California a number of times. I have family there in the Central Valley. And so I've driven through those almond orchards. They look like almond orchards. They look like agriculture. But if I were to drive by an agave farm, I would be like, is what is that? Are you just growing these for for landscaping? Like, you know, just put these in people's yards now? Like it wouldn't seem like agriculture to me at least initially. Mm-hmm. And I say this with a little bit of inf- like, you know, background myself. I grew up on a Christmas tree farm, which is not all that similar from agave because they take around the same amount of time to reach maturity. And you've got, you know, you've got some families, you got your furs, you got your spruces, you got your Frasers, you got your whites and your, you know, blues, you know, different, different types. Right. And, yeah. So I, I guess to me, I like, you know, the d- obvious difference is that Christmas trees, unless you're Lance Winters, generally aren't distilled. Um, <laughs> but so, so I guess to me, I want to go back to you knocking on people's doors, because what happened? Like, what do you do when you knock on somebody's door and they say, yeah, go nuts, take the pups, take the whole thing, right? Like, what do you like? Where does that end up for you?
0: it's it's really grown into a really fun little community because i think there's a mutual benefit when when you knock on someone's door and and you're willing to offer a service to somebody that is basically free to them and they might even get a kickback of getting a bottle or two uh when we're done with the harvest you know so there's there's definitely incentives uh for for some people and um we really try to we, we really try to sell it that way, um, you know, as as far as how we're going about the process. Like we're not out there trying to poach agaves from people and try to you know steal them in the middle of the night or anything like that. What ends up happening is we see these agaves. Uh, most of the time, they haven't been incredibly manicured, so they're kind of growing wild. All the pups are growing on pups and pups, and it can be a jungle sometimes. And you kind of go in there and say, "Hey, look! Like we we'd love to take these agaves, um, you know, off your hands." And we're, and most of the time, that person that you're talking to likes the idea that there's that these agaves are going to be used for a better purpose than just sitting, uh, you know, wild in, in their front or backyard. So, um, and that's grown into a really interesting, like I said, community, because you get to know one another and like, why did you get those agaves? You know, sometimes it's people that have had them on their property for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and you know, they tell you the story of, oh, I just put one agave there 20 years ago and now I have all these. And, you know, be really helpful for you to rip them out. Or uh, in the case of our uh, good friend, Henry Garcia, he planted uh, his agave Americanas uh, to make pulque with his father. Um, You know, they're originally from Durango, Mexico, and uh, they had this big, um, you know, kind of um, plan to to make pulque and sell it to other, you know, uh, migrant farmers and workers um, in their area. And unfortunately, Henry's father passed away before that could come into fruition. Um, so we, when we got to meet him, it was, uh, you know, just serendipitous that we were both looking to use these agaves for for a good purpose, you know, to help that like Henry and I are both Marines, we're both Mexican Americans, we had a lot of the similar, you know, storyline of just getting to the points in our lives. And, uh, and now he's a friend for life. Now he's he's part of our, our Hano community. And so when, when we do these things, it's been, it's been really, you know, humbling to, to be able to n- knock on someone's door and then immediately become friends. And then they call you, Hey, I got more pups and uh, you're the guy, or, Oh, my friend has some more pups and you're the guy. And they just know it's, it, 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 this is a real, I couldn't even call it grassroots. I don't even know what to call it. Agave roots story. And just like literally going to people's yards and, and trying to, trying to do this that way.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's real in a way that it it's that it's not once the autoclaves and diffusers you know and the venture capital kind of enter the equation and i think that's what resonates with people for sure this episode is brought to you by direct fire consulting this is my brand new venture for 2024 so i thought i'd take this opportunity to introduce you to this new project and the kinds of people I'll be partnering with as I build out the portfolio. Longtime listeners know I've been a professional spirits judge for over five years, working with the American Distilling Institute and other organizations to assess the quality of distilled spirits, both domestic and imported. I've also spent more than seven years partnering with distillers here in the Mid-Atlantic on everything from product development to staff training— to special events. So if you're a distiller who's looking for a helping hand with anything short of running your stills, I can't do that for you. Or if you're interested in exploring what it takes to bring a completely new spirits brand to market, Direct Fire Consulting is here to help. Visit directfireconsulting.com or reach out to me personally to learn about all the distilled spirits consulting services I offer, from sensory analysis to branding and packaging to contract distilling placement and much. Much more. Now back to the show. So, one of the things that you're on record as saying is that, you know, fermentation is an emotional roller coaster, right? And, you know, you've got the wine background, so you know fermentation extremely well, uh, very intimately. And what that made me think of when I read that as I was preparing for this interview is that I don't. Recall, and I listen to multiple agave specific podcasts. I have some good ones in my Rolodex that I listen to on a weekly, bi weekly basis. And I like to think that I have some friends who know a lot more than I do about agave. And one of the things that I've never heard once in listening to these podcasts and talking to these people is that uh, mezcaleros down in Mexico are even really phased by the fermentation process. So that got me thinking, what are some of the differences? As somebody who has Mexican heritage, who is making a Mexican product here in the United States, what are some of the differences that you see? I mean, feel free to feel free to talk about fermentation and why it's an emotional roller coaster. But also, I'm curious to know if you can speak to that larger kind of like cultural translation question because i think that's kind of at the heart of this project
0: you bring up a lot of great points to talk about because what we're really dealing with is is almost a comparison of like an old world and new world mentality that we go into making agave spirit you know um it was like the same thing when we talked about the new world and old world in wine you know you asked um Old world wine producers, um, and I'm generalizing here. Uh, why do you do this? Why is it that you guys are doing this, or why don't you do this? And most of the responses I ever got was, "Well, that's just the way we've been doing it for a hundred years, two hundred years, and you know, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it." And I I like that approach. I think there's some um, some real, uh, uh, you know, it's it's authentic because uh, they haven't gone off script there. You know, and, and then you find the, the onesies and twosies in those regions that are, you know, um, moving the, you know, the, the needle here uh, with how they produce. And so it kind of goes back to like how we're doing it here in the United States. Like there's not a lot of information. In the United States about agave fermentation, you know, there isn't a lot of shared knowledge between us and Mexico for a lot of reasons. They might want to keep their trade secrets to themselves. Um, You know, maybe there's there's this kind of like, um, you know, like the process is so different that it wouldn't even make sense, which has been you know done and done again here with with how we've had to make agave spirit here you know we don't have the equipment like they do in mexico like you said we don't have the quarter million dollar auto diffusers like we don't have i'm sorry the the autoclaves and and diffusers and um we don't even have ornos like we're literally building pits and in people's farms and cooking agaves because that's the only method we have here um, when we go to shred agave, yeah. we don't have those. And, really and then uh, creepy-
1: California sees smoke, right? And everyone's and everyone's <clears throat> completely unconcerned.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, I won't even get into that one because it's always fun when you see a white plume of smoke and got to call the neighbors once in a while and go, hey, just so you know, we're going to be doing another cook. So don't don't, um, you know, don't call the cops on us. But, um, But yeah, so I think there's like a lot of a lot of stuff that we're learning here, you know, and especially in American craft distilling, like in my experience, everything comes out of a sack, out of a tote of syrup, you know, everything is already engineered to give you maximum efficiencies, maximum sugar, so you can get the most alcohol and the most bang for your buck, you know, and with when you're dealing with a natural product, that isn't the case. You know, your your sugars are going to vary based on on your, um, you know, on your year yearly. Uh, temperature swings if they if it was a wet year a dry year just like grapes are and so there's there is that aspect that like we don't really deal with in um, you know craft distilling here and then also a lot of our craft distilleries here are engineered for whiskey production brandy production gins you know things that are very very mainstream here versus you go to Mexico it's you know in tequila or mezcal their process is strictly to make one thing um, and that's, you know, their agave spirits. And so we, kind of going back to the Marine Corps thing it was something that we learned very well was adapting and overcoming, you know? And so we've had to basically build our own practices here in California and every producer that's doing it here, uh, does it in a similar way, but we're doing it differently. Um, and so we've basically had to figure out how do you cook the agave? How do you shred the agave? How are you fermenting the agave? Um, and the reason it's such an emotional roller coaster for us is because we're trying to ferment something that ideally doesn't always have all the fermentable sugars that you want it to have. The inulin conversion can be so mystical, you know, and the fermentation could be such a wild ride because one day it's doing great. And you're like, cool, this is going to be done in you know a couple days. You come back the next day and it's flat. Like, what's going on here? Like, what are you doing? And so you really have to be in the moment and adapting to the fermentation. And then also, you stop taking the science out of it sometimes, and you just really kind of go with your gut, um, which I think the old world guys do that very well. So we've been, I've been really trying to play both fields here. You know, on one hand, I want to be very scientific and driven in, in a way that's all data points and, and note taking Um, and then on the other hand, it's, you know, let it be, see what happens, you know? And, um, and I think, uh, I think we obviously have so much to learn, uh, and more repetitions to get under our belts, but the more we do it, the more we understand it. And the more we're honing in on, on, on our, on our process and flavor profile.
1: It's so interesting to have that old world versus new world comparison, because I think The U S is used to being the new world, but having that new world come with privileges rather than, um, sort of like handcuffs, if that makes any sense. Like we're, we're used to having like that automatic judgment status. What is it? The judge, what was the judgment of 1970? What?
0: I think it was. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it was that. I was going to say 74, man. Okay. I was actually going to be right. Uh, you know, where, where California suddenly, you know, uh, breaks onto the world stage in a, you know, in a blind judging of wines and we're like, Oh my God, it's possible You wine from California. And then all of a sudden we're gangbusters and new world is sexy and bada, bada, bada. Right. So I think from and then a, a similar thing, I guess you could say about American single malt, maybe in a different way. But I think we 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 get to sort of romanticize the rebel status of American single malts. Is like ah, oh, we're not a bunch of stodgy old Scottish guys sitting on an island smoking peat, right? We're, we get to, we get to do different things, and because we don't have the rules and the set of cultural expectations, we can go out and be you know unique. But when it comes to agave, like it really does feel like you are trying to engineer what has been occurring in Mexico for hundreds of years, almost from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, I don't know where you stand on this, but if I were trying to imagine myself into the viewpoint of a mescalero from Mexico and I were to hear about American agave producers, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, right. Like not, not in a million years would I ever share with them or like those, those guys are just off doing crazy things. They're never going to be able to do what we do down here. So all of that leads me to a question that I didn't send you beforehand, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. What do you think it would take? Like, let's just do an imagination exercise. Like, can you imagine a world in which a Mexican bartender, because Mexico City and other regions of Mexico is just blowing up in terms of the cocktail scene. What do do you think it would take for a Mexican bartender to import an American agave spirit specifically for use on their agave spirit sipping menu or on their cocktail menu? Because to me, that would be, wouldn't that be like the definitive American agave has made it moment.
0: Yes. And that's, that's exactly what I want to say, because that's, that's like almost the highest compliment you can give us is like, if you do a tasting with, with like Hano and a lineup of different mezcals, Um, because our, our spirit has a lot more of a mezcal kind of style. It's, 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 you know, cooked in an earthen pit. It, It has a lot of the same open top fermentation practices uh, a lot of the double pot distillation. So, when we kind of taste, you know, with Hano, we we kind of, you know, we'll taste other mescals with it, you know, to kind of go. And the highest compliment we've ever gotten was, "Wait, this is American?" You know, and it's like, "This isn't mescal?" And the second we hear that, it's like, "Oh my god, like this. This is this is what it was all about." And and I think that's like what can be done because there's other regions in the world that are making agave spirit. The Australians are going gangbusters right now. The South Africans are, you know, uh, reinventing their agave spirit. There's, you know, South American agave spirit that's happening, you know, Hawaiians, Californians, uh, the rest of the United States. So I think, you know, this is going to be a conversation in the future where it's like, what is now the definitive, definition of like what something should taste like you know what i mean and and that's uh going to be really interesting because the karu from south africa is going to taste different than the agave americana or the agave peri from the united states just as like a salmiana from san luis potosi or duran justice from durango is going to taste differently than um, an espadine from oaxaca or you know a blue weber from jalisco so i think you know we're really kind of like pushing the envelope on on what can be defined. And I think the only thing that I really concentrate on is, is uh, when it comes to like, you know, having those conversations is quality. You need to have quality be the forefront of, of the conversation and make sure that whatever you are making is done with full transparency. You know, I know the, the additive thing is a really hot topic right now, but you know, for us, it's like, it doesn't get more authentic than making it as, as, you know, In these, um, I wouldn't even call them primitive ways, but very ancestral ways of making it. And I think the world's going to have a really good time trying to, you know, pick itself out. One other thing I'd love to talk about, too, that we talk about, you know, the Mexican-American borderline is something that's been really interesting, too, is, you know, we have a huge chicano population here in in the united states you know mexicans that were you know mexicans that were born here you know and grew up here or immigrated here you know i was born in mexico immigrated here with my my family my dad is american but it's really it, it's been a really cool conversation too with with other chicanos or mexican americans because it's nice to be able to drink something that was made by someone like you you know that that can identify this as, as you that has the same story as you maybe growing up in the same neighborhoods you know having the same kind of like you know p- family parties on the weekends or seeing your relatives in mexico every, once a year or so Um, and then be able to drink something together and say, Hey, this is ours. You know, this is a a blend of, of, of all of our cultures and California has so many different cultures and, and, um, and people here that, you know, I, 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 we really strive to make this a very Californian product for anyone who identifies as a Californian, you know, and, um, so that's been that's been really important. So when I go see my family in Mexico City, um, it's been really fun because there's no objection to what we're doing with them. They think it's awesome that we're making an agave spirit, you know, and and uh, and how they're able to say, yeah, my gringo cousin is is uh, a <laughs> you know an agave spirit maker, not a mescalero, but you know they, they use that term very freely. But um, yeah, uh, that that's been a really cool experience with all this too.
1: Well. Again, I'm drawn back to this new world, old world comparison because, you know, one of my favorite quotes is that uh, morality like art means drawing a line somewhere, right? And if you go back to old world, this this goes back to a, a recent conversation I had with um, Devin Trevathan at Liba Spirits about, you know, like authenticity and like what it means to go into a traditional dis- uh, distilling area where things are marked off by lines. If you're on this side of the line, you're in champagne. If you're on that side of the line, you're fucking out of luck, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, your your bottle price just dropped by 40%. So it's interesting that like the, the way that like the way that I think about it is like when you're talking about having these like backyard parties grown up where, you know, you were introduced to these flavors you were introduced to these flavors in a common context with these other chicanos whose aunties are making the same types of dishes you know you, you've got this common you've got this shared flavor palette i guess right mm-hmm. and that informs the way that you make spirit so if you use your palate influenced by these experience these cultural and culinary experiences growing up to then make a spirit that tastes good to your brain because flavor happens in the brain, then it makes complete sense why somebody who looks like you and has similar cultural experiences as you might be able to walk up to that spirit and have a connection with it that other people don't, who don't have that shared flavor palette. And I guess the reason why I say that is because America is supposed to be this melting pot. But well, what happens when you throw all the colors and everything into the same thing? It turns into mud, it turns into the nasty greenish brown like indistinguishable gravy where you you can't pick out the different kind of shades of experience as clearly as you would if you'd say well we're focusing on California we're we're focusing on you know this specific stripe and we're using you know this approach to go after that stripe of the american experience and so there's a clarity that Comes from that that I see as being influenced by that old world, but also still having that element of fusion. I don't know if any of that makes sense to you.
0: It does, and I think there's a lot, lot there because I think as Californians we do have a, a, a kind of a pioneering spirit. You know, if you look at all the the history of our you know uh, ancestors coming west, you know, uh, there's they had to make it. They had to persevere. They came here with an idea that there was prosperity here, and they probably quickly realized that it wasn't all just you know the gravy train out here and we we had to work hard to 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 make it and um you know and same with my you know Mexican ancestry too they had to work just as hard coming here and 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 trying to make a name for themselves and I guess what I'm trying to say is like you know there there are common common stripes in in a lot of uh the the American you know mindset Um, and I think that we We really try to celebrate that you know by by working hard and by doing it the right way and just not cutting any corners and there's kind of a, a of an open mindset too of like we said we're not we're not straddled by by tradition here we can do whatever we want you know and when it comes to like agave that's what's so freeing about you know trying to figure this out without any any strings attached you know i'm not trying to make a tequila i'm not trying to make a, a mezcal i'm not trying to stomp on anyone's toes you know when it comes to making the spirit we're we're doing this purely out of love you know and purely out of Out of just passion for for the plant, um, you know, for the people that that identify with it and their their heritage, Um, and so we're just, you know, we're doing it, um, you know, in a way that that you know pays its respects to the old world, but you know, in this in 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 the new world, we're pushing the envelope. How can we farm with better practices? You know, how can we avoid some of the the mistakes or some of the Traditions already set in stone, you know, how can we, how can we make, you know, higher sugar, better conditions for these agaves? Um, And so those are a lot of things to talk about, you know, when we're fermenting as well. How do we pay attention to some of those fermentation practices that um, maybe just get glossed over because it's just a quote unquote fermentation, you know? Um, You know, one of my partners here, he's a fermentation master. I mean, he's worked for some of the best cult wineries in, in Napa Valley, and so he's taking what he's learned from the wine part of it, and and, and applying that to uh, agave fermentation. And then you know the years that I've been making American single malt and brandies and gins and whatnot, taking my experience behind a still and and trying to push the envelope there by trying to you know really make the the cuts as as precise as possible. Or You know, how do you use the tails in a way or the esterification of the acid from the fermentation, you know, um, to to get you a better ester profile? Like those are the things that maybe don't get talked about all the time in in a in a in a, you know, a little mezcal still, you know, down in Oaxaca. Who knows? I, I would love to you know, I would love to have more conversations with them. But those are the things that we get to focus on when you don't have any baggage or any kind of any anybody that you know, I wouldn't say look over your shoulder, but who cares? You know, we're just, we're doing what we're doing.
1: Yeah. Well, all of this makes me curious about, I guess, I mean, you and I are bought in American agave. Yeah, I'm in, you're in, obviously. Uh, It makes me wonder about everyone else though. So in a day and age where most American agave spirits are reasonably expensive. I mean, maybe you can speak to the price of your spirits. And I mean, I'm not saying that any of these costs are unjustified. It's just at the end of the day, math, right? Uh, but in a day when objectively, it's just expensive to make these agave spirits. I mean, how do we get these in people's hands? What's the value proposition? And like, as I'm, as I'm looking to the future, I mean, like, how do you see things evolving here?
0: The evolution is going to be really interesting because, yeah, right now, why the costs are so high is because the the, the two factors are really the fruit cost. You know, you're talking about the agave, right? You are making very small batches with very high costs because there isn't a streamlined operation here that can make your cost efficient, right? So, like I make a, a barrel of whiskey. Right. I'm going to buy, you know, buy the pound and it's going to be, you know, whether it's good malt, bad malt or not bad malt, but just, you know, less expensive malt. You know, that's going to dictate dictate your overall cost. Um, You're going to look at your yeast, your enzymes, but everything else is pretty, pretty fluid, you know, which makes your efficiencies really high. Right. That malt is jam packed with with uh, starches and and, and enzymes. So all you got to do, I mean easy enough is just go through the process and you'll probably end up with uh, really good efficiencies versus agave. You know, on any given day, my bricks can change by five or 10%, which is going to change my overall output of the bottle cost. you know, and especially when you get such a low yield for as many agaves as you get, you know, I mean, historically, and this is in every case, you're going to get about 10 cases or 120 bottles per ton of agave. So per 2000 pounds, Right. So if you're looking at doing, you know, two tons, you know, you're getting 20 cases, that's 240 bottles. But, you know, to process two tons, to harvest two tons, all the labor costs and all the other costs associated, you know, you got to jam pack into maybe 240 bottles. And so you, you really, you know, so what what's kind of currently happening is, you know, guys in California and probably other places are trying to figure out how do you streamline that, which is a very American thing to do. Is <laughs> try to get it like super industrialized and whatnot. Um, but I think where it's where we're gonna be able to kind of change that narrative is going to be in the next, you know, five to seven years, there's going to be way more agave available out there, especially in California. You know, for the last maybe five years, there's been a a huge growth of of now agave farmers, whether they're hobby farmers that, you know, just grow them on their piece of land or, you know, real professional uh, guys in ag who are, you know, ripping out orchards and putting in agaves. Um, You know, they're all waiting for that seven to 10 year mark where they can finally, you know, activate their agaves and be able to sell. Um, And so I think what's going to happen is with the more availability of, of agave and then you're also going to be able to harvest more at a certain time you're going to be able to make more bottles per production run equals less cost per bottle and making it more attractive will you ever get to that like you know premium or lesser than premium price that'll be a good question because you know there's also a labor cost here that is you know compared to like mexico and other places is uh, you know astronomically high uh comparably and so you're just not i don't know if you're ever going to get there and if you are i would be really afraid of people cutting corners or looking to those really efficient ways of you know cooking agaves and and fermentation processes then at the at the end of the day then what what what's it going to be worth where i see hano kind of going with that is, is especially that is is you know, trying to get as many of those native agaves in the ground or finding those agaves in the ground and and producing more, but never really straying away from our process or what we really believe in and just allowing us to stay small, um, because we want to focus on it. We want to spend every ounce of our time, you know, whether it's 120 bottles or 1200 bottles, you know, they're all going to be made the same for us. Um, but what we're also doing is helping other people by lending our expertise. And, and you know, there's going to be a big surge of other craft distillers, I believe, in the United States that once agaves are more available, are going to take a shot at making their own. And they'll probably quickly learn that, you know, it's not as easy as, you know, taking a tote of syrup and, and fermenting it. And uh, just sending it through a still, that there's other factors here. So, I think some of us right now are trying to lay the foundation for other people, so that way they can kind of go ahead and and uh, give it a shot and have a higher success rate than some of us had in in our beginning days.
1: It's interesting how you describe using literal, you know, bottles, cases, and tons the sort of natural limits that nature places. On this process. And I think thinking back on many of the spirits and traditions and practices that yield some of the most incredible flavors, it seems like there's some wisdom in understanding those natural limits and using them as guidelines as opposed to, you know, trying to fly a little too close to the sun and, you know, manufacturing yourself into. Essentially, vodka, um, and then what do we see from there? Vanilla, right? Like we we we've seen this story. Oh, yeah. You know, anybody who's paying attention has seen how the story plays out, and so I do think you know you you were you were mentioning uh, you know one of the benefits of of being in this quote unquote new world agave tradition is that you can learn from some of the mistakes that are you know, maybe currently even playing out in, in other places. And I think to me, that seems like a really nice one to try and avoid. And it's not difficult to do that, right? Like, like you're, you're, you're kind of describing that this thing has some natural limits is, and Hey, if we kind of stay in the, on these rails and are willing to pay a little bit more for it, maybe a lot more for it as the case may be, then we can at least avoid that trap and sort of the, 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 Economic and environmental, you know, tire fires that can can ripple outward from that. So th- that's a discussion, perhaps for a, for a different episode. But tell me a little bit more about your portfolio because we've been dancing around uh, the fact that you make these delicious spirits. Tell us about your your lineup and you know, give us some rough pr- price points. And obviously, our listeners are going to want to know where they can try these things that people walk up to and say, "Wait." That's not mezcal.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so the portfolio is super easy for us because we make it by batch, and the batches kind of line up by by vintage at this point, you know. And um, so we we had our first batch come out, um, I believe it was twenty twenty one or two. Man, it's been whirlwind. Um, And then batch three came, uh, I'd say shortly right after. But basically, we were making ten to fifteen cases at a time you know, or even 15 to 20 um, and in our last one. And basically uh, it's pretty simple right now. There's only agave Americana out there. And like we talked about, we're gone and, you know, we're finding and um, cultivating these relationships with uh, these, um, you know, agave growers, ranchers, uh, whoever would be willing to help us out. Um, and, uh, and, and then for us to help celebrate them and tell their story. Um, and so that's what's really been kind of like now in the future is, you know, batch two is almost sold out, to be completely honest with you. Um, it's, it's been very humbling to see the interest in not only just the consumer, but the industry, you know, people that are willing to take a, a chance on your product by putting it on the back of their shelf or on their storefront and, and be able to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to take a chance um, and, and help you out. And, uh, and we do our best to, um, you know, to help them by supporting them and, you know, coming in and tasting them on it or giving education classes or, you know, just sending people that, that right way. You know, a good friend of ours, Chris and Claire has a great bottle shop in Sacramento, The Good Bottle Shop, also has an amazing podcast. But, you know, he's been one of the earliest supporters of not just Hano, but, you know, California Agave. And it's great to have a friend like that, that you can go in and, and get the you know, the, the real perspective of someone on his end, and of, you know, what are people saying about your, your agave spirit? Are they coming back and buying another bottle or are they just intrigued and, and just want it as a, as a memento? Um, you know, who knows? Um, and so all of that really helps us kind of look to the future because we're planning on doing some harvests this year. Um, In a way that that really accelerates what we're talking about, you know, working with some friends down south of us who have, you know, a couple of agaves that need to get ripped out. Well, instead of sending them to the compost pile, let's make some spirit out of it. And if we get five to 10 cases out of it, fantastic. But what we really want to do is tell the story of the agaves, the people that grew them and and use some native fermentation practices that we're working on even using the well water from that property to cut the spirit down so we can really make a very terroir driven agave spirit and that'll be one of the next batches and if someone else calls us from a different part of the state and says hey i got a couple of agaves would you be willing to look at it absolutely you know and what's what's your story why do you have these and you know and and just keep doing that until you know in well, forever, <laughs> and uh, <you laughs> know, so I think I think for us it's pretty easy uh, to do that, and and then yeah, once we have enough of the other agaves in the ground and we're able to harvest them ourselves and 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 make them, then we might make larger production batches. But you know, we're talking a matter of you know ten to twenty cases more. We're not going from ten cases to a thousand cases. You know, we're. We're going to keep doing that and pushing the envelope and, and getting more reps under our our, our, our belt, so we can actually, um, when we get to the 100 cases, you know, we can do them to the best of our ability.
1: Yeah, exactly. Scale takes work if you want the quality to scale as well. So... If someone who's listening right now is curious and wants to pick up a bottle for research and development purposes, either now or the next time you release a batch, what's a rough price point and where would they stay on the lookout for these bottles to, uh, to, to pop up?
0: They're $120 on the shelf. Uh, you can find them at, well, The Good Bottle in Sacramento, uh, Old Town Tequila in San Diego. They, they're like the agave shop. Oh, my God, they're amazing, and they ship. Um, uh, they're incredible. Um, and if you go to our one website, hanospirits.com, you can find a, a map of where you can find our spirits. Most places either ship or, or have them available. And if not, just kind of send a message to us, and we try to do our best to guide you the right way and see who's in stock as of right now.
1: Awesome. Well, that's good for getting bottles. Uh, now, getting in touch with you personally, let's say I'm somebody in California who's got uh, some pesky agaves that I need um, managed and perhaps turned into juice. Uh, or if I just want to follow you on social media, where do I go to get in touch?
0: Yeah. So my social media, so we have Hano Spirits uh, for our Instagram. My personal Instagram is El Hano Blanco um you can find me there um and if you have any questions on agave like feel free to message us there we're always around uh, to say hello um and respond to any questions you might have and um yeah i was gonna say those are our two there we have a contact page on our website too if you want to come say hello but yeah we're, we're out there we, we're, we we got a fun little agave network um so you'll, you'll find us
1: all right. Well, Gian, uh, that's perfect. We'll link to everything on the show notes page. Uh, how's about some quick lightning round questions? Let's do it, man. All right. Desert Island scenario. You get to take one bottle of straight spirits with you, and you've also got a cocktail as well. Either all the ingredients are on hand or you've got it on drafts in, you know, kind of like a Gilligan's Island style situation. What's your cocktail and what's your straight pour for a desert Island with no prospect of rescue?
0: Oh man. Okay. So cocktail, I'm the simplest dude ever. I'm a ranch water guy until the day I die. If All it is is agave, (laughs) sparkling water and a lime. I'm literally like, that's all I drink ever. If we ever hang out, you already know my order because it's literally from here to any coast or country. It's the same thing. Um, Straight pour though, uh, to be completely honest with you, man, there, I will tell you if I can bring one, it would be the mezcal I got when I took my wife on our honeymoon back to my hometown of Zihuatanejo, Mexico. Um, it's in the state of Guerrero. And we got in contact with a guy at the hotel who said he knew a guy who made mezcal uh, up in the foothills above where we were staying. And um, next thing you know, he brings down a, you know, a couple liters of like the you know little water bottles. It's like, you know, moonshiners have the mason jars, like Mexicans have old water bottles, you know? And so I bought a couple liters out of that, and it has been the best mezcal I've ever had. It is the pinnacle of what I think it, it is. It's a 100% cumprieta. Um and it's just the memory, but also the flavor is just incredible. Um, it has, it's mm-hmm. there's a sweetness there that I've never tasted in any other mezcal, and it's just so soft uh, at such a high proof. I, I would love to shake that person's hand, whoever made that. Mm. Yeah, I'll, I would. I'll, I'll be buried with that bottle. <laughs> with that water bottle. <laughs> exactly. It'll never decompose. Perfect.
1: Exactly. Um, I love it. I love it. All right. Next question. Uh, now, aside from Agave Americana, which has a Spanish name. They also grow it in Mexico, which is something you haven't mentioned yet. What are your favorite agave varietals to drink if you are you know, going to pick up a bottle of uh, either single varietal or maybe a targeted ensemble mezcal?
0: Um, yeah, so... Yeah, the fact that the agave Americana, right, is, like, native to, like, the um, southwestern part of, like, Texas. And, you know, obviously it's uh, was probably grown in the same, you know, area in, in Mexico, just across the the Rio Grande there, which, funny enough, like, some of my favorites that I drink are from, you know, uh, Durango, San Luis Potosí. I love Durangesis. I love Salmiana. I think there's a, a kind of... Um, almost a, you know, a dustiness, um, almost um, an earthiness that you get that I, I don't always get with like an espadine. Um, so, you know, any kind of raizia has always been really great. Uh, Bacanara has been obviously popular and I've, I've got to try some of them. Um and then Ensembles, like I think you know, Ray Compero makes some incredible Ensembles. Uh La Luna um is one of my favorite Mescal brands. I think they're just like my super go-to uh for for whatever. So um but I would say my my favorite varietals uh would definitely be like Salmiana, Durangesis. Um yeah, those have been some of my my favorites to drink so far.
1: Awesome, awesome. If you could have a drink with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture.
0: Man, I think I will have to go super cliche here and probably say like Ernest Hemingway. I think you know, like his whole relationship with alcohol and like you know what what how he wrote about it in his books um, were so fascinating to me when when I did read <laughs> and learned how, but I think, um, I think he just has a, a really good way of, of, you know, having a relationship with spirit that uh, I don't think a lot of people have, you know, maybe Mark Twain or, or someone else of, of, of those, you know, eras would, would do really well. Um, but just to be able to like, you know, yeah, have a night of drinking with him would be probably up there.
1: I, I have a feeling he could probably put you down, you know, he, pra- <laughs> he had a lot of practice. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to take a spin off of this question that came to me as we were talking, not because you mentioned it, but just because we're on the, in, in that universe, if you could make a Pechuga using any sort of crazy ingredients, like, is there anything, have have you ever been like, man, someday I'm just going to throw this in the still and see what happens. That sort of thing. If you could make a crazy pachuga, no, no price limits, no, um, no, no, no rules whatsoever. What would you be throwing in or hanging in the pot?
0: I think I would take a super terroir approach, almost like St. George did, you know, of just like what is around me that smells and tastes good and isn't going to kill me. So I think <laughs> we, we, ha- we, have had those conversations of just like, well, all right, who's getting married or like, what celebration are we going to have? Like, who, who can we make a batuga for, you know? And basically, you know, if we're doing a harvest in like the central coast of California where it's, you know, very like, Bay laurel and all these like beautiful natural grasses and coastal, you know, plants and, and flowers. Like, how can you do that when you're making a, you know, a batch, you know, from down there or if you're in the desert, you know, can you use the desert sage and can you use manzanitas and yuccas and all these different beautiful things of the desert? So if it were up to me, like that's where it would be very very meaningful to me to make a pachuga because I, I appreciate the regionality of pachuga. Some people are putting turkeys, some people put deer, iguanas, you know, they're putting different dragon fruit and all this beautiful stuff. And I mean, in California, it's just a, just a, a, a platter of, of different spices and, and botanicals here that you can make something really, really special.
1: Well, I'm going to go ahead. And go out on a limb and say, I'm okay if the iguana never makes it onto my platter. Uh, In watching Anthony Bourdain, I think the only time I've ever seen him just like straight up reject food was when he went to Mexico and they served him iguana and he was just like, you know what? This tastes vile and I don't think there's any rescuing it. So I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, I'll pass on the iguana. But last question, uh, do you have any controversial views or beliefs either in the spirits or the larger drinks world?
0: you know, I don't know if they're controversial. I would say I'm pretty stubborn when it comes to how I think about spirits. I'm, I'm, I'd like to think of spirits as, is having to be made in a very authentic way. Right. So for me, it's like when we're talking about making whiskey, you know, like I try to use the, the best malts, the best, you know, barrel profile, the aging it the old fashioned way of just letting it sit in a warehouse for <laughs> as long as I can. And, you know, so when I see a lot of, the, a lot of what the industry does, I mean, personally, I've never really looked at a lot of those as a uh, mm, guidelines for me or any kind of like inspiration. Um, so I, I guess for me in, in the craft that I make, I, I just try to keep it as, as authentic as possible. And um, yeah, that's, that's all I got to say about that.
1: Well, I think if we've learned anything from this conversation, it's that authenticity uh, is a byproduct of intention. And You certainly can't get there unless you've got the intention. It also comes at a price. And it seems like there's two ways you can react to that, either as a, a maker or a consumer. You can say, ah, no thanks. Or you can say, ooh, that's exciting. And uh, I think we know, based on the hour we've just gotten to spend together, where you fall on that particular spectrum. So Gian, I wanna thank you for all of the insights you provided here about the American agave industry at large, uh, about the process of taking California and really uh, helping to make a name for, for your region and for the great work that's being done there by you and by others. Just remind us one more time, where can we find you in the digital space and uh, give us just the, the, the brand and, and all that good jazz.
0: Yeah, Eric, it's been an honor, man. Honestly, I wanted to thank you first for having a platform for a lot of the craft distillers out there that, that you know, want a voice. And and I've, I've listened to your stuff and, and you've really done a great job of allowing people to really tell their, their truth and their story. So thank you for, for from all of us. Um, and you just had our good friend Devin on there. She's our gal, man. Love that girl to death. Um, but as far as me uh hano spirits you can find us on instagram hano spirits or my personal instagram of el hano blanco check out our website HanoSpirits.com. Um, you can find uh, all the retailers that carry our product and then look out for more we're doing some more harvest this year um and if you'd ever like to participate i'm talking about you your listeners the world if you ever want to come by and get sweaty in an agave field with us uh let us know we'll get you on the list and uh we'll, we'll make some cool spirit.
1: Bro, I can't think of a better way to to end and to sign off here. Let's get sweaty and cheers to you. <laughs> cheers, amigo. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple things you can do to help the show. One would be to rate and review this program anywhere you enjoy listening to podcasts, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The more ratings and reviews we have, the easier it will be for other like-minded flavor nerds to enjoy the content that I produce. You can also follow the Modern Bar Cart YouTube channel where I post video clips from the podcast and beyond. And you can join our growing Discord community which is where our listeners submit questions for upcoming guests and chat about all kinds of fun spirits and cocktail shenanigans. It's also where I share fun perks and discounts that are too exclusive to blast out on the airwaves. To join our community Discord server or get in touch with me for any other reason, all you need to do is drop me a line by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and boozy adventures are just beginning. So remember, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, American Agave Insights, courtesy of Gian Nelson of Hano Spirits, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Direct Fire Studios production, copyright 2024.